Lord, we praise you. There's none before you, none above you. There is no one who gives commands to you, but you are the sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords. And we come now before your word and strive to submit to it and to honor your name. For you have given life in your name. And you have allowed us now as your people to live for the glory of your name. May we do so and may we be encouraged in the text that is before us today to continue to persevere in the faith, to continue to trust you and walk in faithfulness to you. For those who know not Christ as Savior, we ask that you would help them to see what they cannot see in their own strength and to come to understand Christ's saving grace. We thank you. For this opportunity in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Mrs. Emma Burke was sleeping when the earth's plates shifted below her San Francisco apartment building early in the morning of April 18th, 1906. She was startled awake, you can imagine, when her bed hit the opposite wall in the bedroom. She sprung from the bed, grabbing the footboard for to stay upright and made her way to the door frame to the door and sought to get out of the door but the twisting of the building had already sealed the door shut it was wedged against the door frame you can imagine the terror as the earthquake just continued and she pulled on that door with all of her might but it would not yield the trembling increased The building began to crack and buckle and twist and fall apart all around her. Mercifully, in that movement, the door was released. And in those convulsions, she was able to get outside of the door and there found her husband who had gotten up before her and her son who had made his way from his bedroom. And they all clung to the doorposts as the building swayed and buckled. It felt like they were more on a ship than in an apartment building. In Emma's words, the earthquake, she said, grew constantly worse. The noise deafening, the crash of dishes, falling pictures, the rattle of the flat tin roof, bookcases being overturned, the piano hurled across the parlor, the groaning and straining of the building itself, broken glass and falling plaster made such a roar that no one noise could be distinguished. Providentially, the family was able to descend the four flights of twisted, swaying stairs to the street below as the apartment building continued to shake apart. The home they so treasured as a source of security became a death trap. It was of utterly no help to them now. On a grander scale... And with eternal consequences, what the Burke family experienced on earth foreshadows a yet more tragic destiny of every soul that clings for hope to that which will shake apart in the presence of Christ. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 to 29, the author exhorts us to take a hard look at where we are placing our trust and directing our focus. He exhorts us not to cling to this life, to what will not endure in the next. Don't cling in this life to what will never endure the next. 
Rather, we must persevere in our focused pursuit of the unshakable kingdom of Christ that is to come. So let's consider again the Hebrew church and their situation. They're facing severe temptation to abandon their identity as born-again followers of Jesus Christ and to return to life as Jewish citizens appealing to the old covenant that God had established with Israel and observing that old covenant with many people that would surround them and make life a lot easier and a lot safer. Now that's not, frankly, our temptation. We don't come here today really tempted to go back to the old covenant. But as we see matters from their perspective, we see the direct challenge to us today to persevere in active pursuit of the only kingdom that will never be shaken. So while our temptations may be different, the pursuit of that unshakable kingdom is the shared experience that we have with the Hebrew believers. Our world pressures us to cling to this world, to place all of our hopes, all of our affections and interests in things that will not endure God's final judgment. But Hebrews 12, verses 18 to 29 helps us remember we are citizens of the unshakable kingdom of Christ, and we must learn to live as if we, that was the, the case as if that were actually true, that we are citizens of that unshakable kingdom here now in this world. And while what pulls us away from that is different than what the Hebrews faced, we face the same challenge. Two primary exhortations then in this passage for us as believers under the new covenant. And that is, first of all, that we must treasure our new covenant blessings in Jesus. To think about these is an important part of our perseverance in the faith. Our worship, first of all, is disconnected from the foreboding darkness and the holy terror experienced by old covenant believers, as we've read earlier in the book of Exodus chapter 19 this morning. Let's consider that here as we come to verse 18 of Hebrews 12. For you have not come to what may be touched. And I think it is right for us here, we can say at least by understanding, to add the word to a mountain that may be touched. A blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So we picture again the scene as we've read of it earlier, but let's do it again. Focus there. Recently delivered from Egyptian bondage, the Israelites are encamped at the foot of Mount Sinai. They're instructed to prepare for three days to meet with God. He was going to descend under the top of Mount Sinai. They had to be asking, what's that going to look like through these days of preparation? The warning came. Because of God's presence there, the mount was now holy ground. And no one was to touch it. No one was to go past its base and begin to ascend its heights. And if anyone did, they were to be stoned or shot with an arrow. 
Even an animal that did the same and escaped somehow to begin to go up that mountain was to be struck from, by an arrow or by a slingshot, the stone of a slingshot. You, you couldn't even touch the mountain, couldn't go there, or you would drop dead. As the day arrived, the Israelites assembled at the foot of the mountain and they craned their necks to see the summit above them. What would this hold? What would this day be like? What would it mean that God came to visit among us? Suddenly a dense, dark cloud descended on the mountaintop. Picture it. The gathering gloom terrified the people. The dark clouds lit up with bolts of lightning followed by peals of deafening thunder. And if that sound alone, we, we always endure thunderstorms usually inside a inside a building or a car we don't hear that sound they're right there with it and that sound is overwhelmed by the sound of these trumpets that just keep playing this trumpet be it one or many playing in unison it's an overwhelming irritating agitating sound all of this is going on visually before them. And the fire of God's presence penetrates the cloud. And that fire creating smoke, the smoke rises like a kiln from the top of that mountain. It was utterly terrifying. The terrified congregation even pled for deliverance. Moses, you talk to God. We don't want to hear this anymore. His voice, the sound of it, the power of it, the trumpet, the thunder. His presence overwhelmed Israel. They were really, as we might put it, just about spooked out of their minds. This is what it means to approach God. Now the author of Hebrews uses that scene at Mount Sinai where Israel received the stipulations and the responsibilities of the old covenant by which God would relate to Israel as his chosen people. The author uses that scene as a picture of the larger reality of the old covenant, the way that God related to Israel under that covenant. And we might say, well, why, why does he draw such a negative picture. There might be other ways of describing the Old Covenant than this. Why make it so dark and foreboding and ugly? Was the law evil? Was God misusing His people by issuing this law on Mount Sinai? Not at all. The law Moses received from God expressed God's will. It was good. It was a gift of God's grace to Israel. The law was a life-giving delight to the Israelite that walked with God. But there is a massive difference between following the law when that is all that God has revealed and religiously following that law after God has revealed more. That's where he had the Hebrews. These early readers. The law was good, but it was provisional. It did not... Because at this point in salvation, it could not provide a complete answer to how God could be just and the justifier of sinners. We understand how He can justify sinners by being unjust 
And we can understand how he can be just by punishing sinners, but not how these two fit together. The old covenant never provided really a satisfying answer to that question because it was pointing forward to something else. It was pointing forward to Christ and his saving grace. So the law that Israel received at Sinai depended ultimately on the sacrifice of Jesus to bear the guilt and the punishment of God's people so that he could be just in punishing sin and the justifier who forgives sins on the merits of Jesus Christ. So at this stage in salvation history, the law worked to put the fear of God in the hearts of His people. As it pointed to the salvation found in Christ alone, it was doing so saying, you're not ready to approach God. You're not cleansed such that you may come into His holy presence. What the law could do, and what was so clearly illustrated at Sinai, was to teach Israel and all believers since that God is a holy God and that sinners cannot stand in His presence on their own merits. That was made very clear by this visual display. Readers, says the author, hear me. Understand this. Sinai's not your mountain. The old covenant is not your covenant. It's not the covenant by which you now approach God. So thinking of returning to this foreboding scene is really folly. Now I'd like us to just to note some things of these verses, verses 18 to 21. Notice in verse 18 the word come. You have not come... That word come speaks of approaching a God in worship. Here, of course, Yahweh God. But you have not come to approach God in worship. Secondly, note here, you have not come. That's meant as a direct contrast to what we find in verse 22. For you have not come, verse 18, verse 22, but you have come. So you have not come in the approach of worship to Mount Sinai, but you have come to Mount Zion. You see the contrast there. You have not come to a tangible, physical mountain, but you have come to Mount Zion, a mountain that is not touchable in this world. So we have to understand who we are, where we stand in salvation history. It's vital that you do this. You have not come in approach to God through this old covenant. So our worship is disconnected from that foreboding darkness and holy terror. We know that God, this is the true God, Mount Sinai, and yet that's not the approach that we have to Him. Secondly, verses 22 to 24, our worship is connected to the glorious wonder and saving grace of new covenant blessings in Jesus. He works that out here in verses 22 to 24. Verse 22. But, in contrast to that, verse 18, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. That's not three different places. It's all just saying the same thing to get our attention to focus on the wonder of this place which is not touchable to us here. You have come to Mount Zion, 
the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. The point is what? Our citizenship is not on earth with Israel under the old covenant. Rather, we have come, we have assembled to worship at the throne of God's eternal heavenly kingdom. And this fits the context of the book so well, doesn't it? Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 10, Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. There's a heavenly focus there. Hebrews 11.14, a reference to believers who seek a homeland that is not of this world. And Hebrews 13.14, where we'll, by God's grace, come next week. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. So the book is constantly pointing us to the city that is to come, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the place that is not tangible here. There is our focus. And now as he did with the Old Covenant in Mount Sinai, the author piles up descriptive phrases of the life we have in Christ. So where's he, where's he drawing from to say, here's the picture of the Old Covenant? He goes back to that terrifying scene of God's holiness and power at Mount Sinai. Where's he going to go now? Notice this, the wonder of this. Where does he go as he now wants to describe the New Covenant? Verse 22. Come to, living, to the Mount Zion, city of the living God, heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. A starker contrast with Mount Sinai could hardly be imagined. The reference is to the courts of heaven teeming with magnificent angels gathering for joyful worship of the Lord. Now, Moses in the book of Deuteronomy references the angelic presence at Mount Sinai. He speaks of the innumerable angels that were there attending to God's powerful presentation of His holiness. But now we look at the angels in this glorious kingdom that is untouchable to us here today, but is just as real, where they are gathered in festal gathering. That is, like for a festival, for a celebration of worship in the presence of the Lord. This is no scene of foreboding darkness and gloom, of lightning and thunder and consuming fire and billowing smoke. It's a scene that pulsates with anticipation, followed by joyful celebration. Added to the crowds of angels gathering for worship are throngs of the redeemed who join the festal spirit, verse 23, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. The firstborn, I think, refers to all believers who are the inheritors of heaven. Firstborn meaning not somebody who's the first child born in a family, but rather the one who inherits. So the reference here of those who follow the ultimate firstborn, the son, are the inheritors of God's grace and blessing, and their names are enrolled in heaven. They are there on the roll that says you are a member here you are a child of god we will gather with the also it says here the spirits of the righteous made perfect so there are there is the assembly of the firstborn there is a gathering to god the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect this judge is the god and lord and king of all 
and He is there, but with Him are the spirits of the righteous made perfect. That is, believers who are in God's presence today in temporary bodies, awaiting the resurrection of their earthly bodies. There is a real, live presence with God that anticipates the consummation of the resurrection and the finalization of that. That's, what you're, that's where you've been invited. That's where your orientation is, he says. Verse 24, And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. All of this hinges on Jesus, our mediator. The one who stands between us and God and who provides the forgiveness of sin, the sprinkling of blood, referring back to that old covenant practice of taking the hyssop, dipping it in the water and blood mixture and and symbolically sprinkling it on the people to say that there was a blood sacrifice that applies to all of you. That blood sacrifice in the land of God in His kingdom is the blood of Jesus Christ The final sacrifice for sin. The one whose death permitted God to be just and the justifier of those who have faith in His name. He is the one between us and God. He is the one who bridges the distance between the sinner and God and says, come into my joyful courts for worship and song in the presence of the Lord who is your judge and your Savior. Through Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful picture of joy and gladness, of forgiveness of sin. And it is there then a a recognition that this way of salvation, this way into God's presence, is not through some ritualistic system. Remembering the old covenant had its place, its time, it was God's goodness, it was His grace. But... On this side of the cross, the way in is through what Jesus Christ has done for sinners. If you've not embraced His work of sacrifice to pay the cost of your sin, His arms are open and welcoming and calling you. He wants you in the wish of His heart, in the craving of His soul, for you to be with Him there in glory. Come, trust Him, turning from your sin and saying, I place all of my trust upon Him. Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel is probably referenced here likely because he was the first martyr in history. The one who died for his righteousness. Innocent blood shed because of his righteousness actions and deeds and sacrifice and Christ's blood in a parallel way cries out in total victory over sin and death not crying out merely for justice but crying out in victory his message is a better message by far for Jesus did not only die as an innocent martyr his death secured the forgiveness of sin and so it is a better word that bespeaks a better covenant in the presence of the Lord Let's just pause for a moment here and consider the Old Covenant, the New Covenant. There are indeed similarities between these covenants. And I've sought to be 
accurate in saying that the Old Covenant was given as grace to Israel. It was a kindness. It was light. It was good where they were. It was the best that had been given to anyone. But that said, the New Covenant is new. It's not merely a polished up Old Covenant. The New Covenant provides the only sacrifice for sin by which God can be just in punishing sin and the justifier of repentant sinners. So the Old Covenant pointed to this glorious conclusion. It was working to help us prepare and to see where God was pointing us. The Old Covenant pointed to this glorious conclusion. Why then would the Hebrew readers want to turn their back on the New Covenant and approach God at the base of Mount Sinai, so to speak. At this point in salvation history, that is essentially what all other religions are doing, and even many who claim the name of Christ. They get people to turn their back on the finished work of Christ on the cross, the all-sufficient sacrifice for sin, and they turn the face to the base of some mountain that they climb in their own strength and that they devise according to their own imaginations. Some approach to the divine that we devise and that we in our own strength seek to accomplish with a back-turned to the final and finished work of Christ. What we need to see in light of this passage is that that approach will be shaken apart. The divine wrath and severity of God that was demonstrated on Mount Sinai pales in comparison with the final judgment of a holy God. And all human-dependent, human-devised religion will be shaken apart into nothing. Nothing will stand before the throne of Christ but those who stand clothed in His righteousness. All else will shake apart. And so this leads to the next major section here in in these verses, and that is the call to heed God's voice from the unshakable kingdom. We need to treasure our position in Christ and the new covenant, but then to heed God's voice from this unshakable kingdom as we hear it. Verse 25, See that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused Him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject Him who warns from heaven. Now, there wasn't a a, a hill outside of the, the gathered church here of the Hebrews where they were listening audibly to God. He's talking figuratively, obviously, here, but he's saying there is the voice of God in His written Word. As it points to Christ. Heed that word. Do not refuse Him who continues to speak to His people through His word. So verse 25 introduces a final call in Hebrews to persevere in the faith by heeding God's word. This call contrasts with Israel's disobedience to God under the old covenant. God warned Israel from earth and He spoke to them from the tabernacle. 
But now God warns us from heaven by the revelation of his written word. So if the Israelites did not escape God's wrath when he exhorted them on earth, how much more will we fall subject to divine wrath if we refuse to obey God when we stand before him in glory? He warns us now from heaven's throne. Verse 26, at that time, that goes back to the old covenant, Mount Sinai, at that time his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. That shaking on Mount Sinai, there's a greater shaking that is to come. That was just a a forewarning of it. This is a recurring theme in Old Testament prophecy. The day of the Lord when God judges the living and the dead, among other things. But the author here quotes Haggai 2.6 in the prophecy of this final judgment of God against the cosmos. At that time, everything that is in this universe will be shaken to disillusion. Think of it again, verse 26. Once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. I'll shake all of the physical universe. This phrase, verse 27, yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is the things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. That is, Haggai the prophet and other Old Testament texts have pointed to this day of shaking. And I I want you to get this, he says. Get this. Everything that is tangible and physical will be shaken into oblivion. And by implication, everything that human beings trust in outside of God will be gone. Nothing will exist. Nothing will stand. The created universe shaken to death, undergoing a judgment that everything in all creation will be consumed by fire. Only what cannot be shaken will survive. This is a theme throughout the Scriptures. I draw from just two. One from the Old Testament, one from the New. But Isaiah 13, Therefore I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of His fierce anger. Or as Peter says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Notice that exposure. A shaking that exposes only what stands. Dissolves everything else. Waiting for, hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. And the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Therefore I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of His fierce anger. This is a persistent warning that we find in Scripture. Follower of Christ, disaster can shake your world. Disease can shake your world. Broken relationships and financial collapse can shake your world. Shattered dreams and colossal failure and betrayal can shake our worlds. 
But nothing can shake the kingdom of Christ. Nothing ever will. It will stand solid for eternity. And it alone. Everything else that we cling to for security or imagine will fulfill our souls apart from Christ will be destroyed. And so just like in a little picture like the Burke family making their way out of the apartment which now meant nothing but death and destruction to them, so will be everything in which we trust that is physical and temporal. Christ's kingdom alone will stand. And on that day, that's where you want to stand. Why would we run to the things of this earth that will not survive? Why would you go back now because the time is past and Christ has come? Why would you Hebrew believers go back to the old covenant way and turn it into something it never was. Now a means of self-righteousness to stand on ground that's going to shake apart. Stand in Christ. Christian believer, Eden Baptist Church, let us stand in Christ. He alone will not be shaken apart. So, The obvious conclusion, verses 28 and 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Picture there of a a reception, a gift, not earned, but given to us by our mediator, Jesus Christ. This place where the angels gather in festal array. This place where the spirits of the righteous made perfect are assembled now. This place which will resound with the glories of God forever and ever. Let us receive that kingdom gratefully, thankfully. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. If we got a sense of how what we're sitting in what we're holding to every day, a sense of how quickly this will be shaken apart and lost and destroyed, and of the solidity and the finality and eternity of our heavenly home, we would worship with deeper reverence and awe. May we strive to do it. With reverence and awe, why? Because our God is a consuming fire. It's not that the new covenant has created a new God who's warmer and kindlier. The God on Mount Sinai is our God. He is a consuming fire, and we've only begun to see the power of His consuming judgment. But this same God now in Christ draws us near into His presence because we have been cleansed by the work of and sacrifice of Christ, we can set our affections there and worship Him here, knowing that this One who is an all-consuming fire of judgment and power is our Father. The One who welcomes us in, who embraces us as His own, and says, come home, my child. This land will never be shaken. 
As we grasp that, it changes how we live. It's not meant simply for our future focus, but to say, I'm a citizen of that kingdom. That's where my solid ground is. So one day this universe will be shaken apart by the purifying fire of our God who is a consuming fire. But it won't resemble the earthquake in San Francisco. It won't resemble Mount Vesuvius in 79 AD that buried cities, especially Pompeii. But the cataclysm that God promises will shake the universe as God's holy judgment falls with great severity. On that day, nothing we touch in this world will survive. And so it is utterly essential that we make certain that we are actively receiving and clinging to the gift of the kingdom that will never be shaken. Where does that place you today? Where does that place me? Where are our affections located? If they're located in that which is passing and dying and shaking apart and set aside for destruction... There's an emptiness deep within that will not be satisfied by anything in this dying world. Let us set our affections on that kingdom that will never be shaken. That is a gift from our God. Let's pray. We ask for aid to that end, Lord, because we are lured by a world that is all about the physical and the now. We thank you that we don't deny the physical. You've created this world. It is good, but there is a more real world to come. And it's to that home that we journey. And I pray that you'd help us as a church to journey faithfully and honorably before you day by day. Lord, we pray in behalf of those who just, whose eyes have not been opened to see it and who remain dull to the realities that are to come, to the realities that are breaking into this world even now. I pray that you'd bring saving faith to eyes that are blind now by sin. And Lord, for those of us who embrace this saving grace, we receive it with thanksgiving. We long to worship you in reverent fear and holy joy as we consider the chorus the din of praise in your presence around your throne. Lord, we long for the glories of heaven. We can only begin to imagine what they are. A world more real than this one. A more glorious and beautiful world than we can even imagine. We are stunned by what you've created and really most of what we see is what you've done by way of destruction. A flood that snuffed out life and we're here on the remains and we're awed god what will this world be when you incinerate it and take those base elements and turn them into a world of glory of wonder that we can only begin to understand god increase our faith strengthen our faith help us to set our eyes on that kingdom and may it affect the way we think about every aspect of our lives we pray this. We are coming to you. This isn't a ritual. 
We come to you as your little children and we plead that you'd give us a heavenly focus. For the glory of your name and for the good of your people. Through Christ we pray. Amen.